0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 10. It is generally agreed that there are five major dialogues in Matthew's gospel, each coming after an extended narrative detailing Jesus' travel and activity. As we've said several times now, Matthew is often called the teacher's gospel because of his obvious interest in these large blocks of Jesus' preaching and instruction. Here in Matthew 10, we see that pattern continued. In chapters 8 and 9, Matthew appears to have condensed several stories that are also found in Mark so as to leave room for an extended dialogue that Mark does not include. If you look at Mark's version of the sending out of the 12 in Mark 6, you'll notice that it's much shorter. Mark tends to focus on the facts and the actions, whereas Matthew is very interested in the things that Jesus said. Again, this is just another reason to be thankful for the wisdom of God in providing us with four different perspectives on these events. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, for the last couple of chapters, we've been talking about Jesus' remarkable authority, We've mentioned the title that is often given to this whole section, The Kingdom Extended Under Jesus' Authority. We've seen that Jesus has authority over disease, over demons, over nature, and even over death. And now we're being told that in some sense, that authority is going to be shared with and exercised by his 12 disciples. It is worth noticing that this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that he uses the phrase his twelve disciples. In verse 2, we also find the only time in Matthew's gospel where the twelve are called apostles, a word which originally meant something like authorized agent, or literally, one sent with authority. The point seems to be that the authority of Jesus is not being shared with the disciples generally. It is being shared explicitly here with his 12 disciples, his authorized agents. In some sense, these men now share in the special power and anointing that has thus far characterized the ministry of Jesus. We think of that time in the Old Testament when God took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. That's in Numbers 11, 17. God said to Moses, I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Numbers 11:17. So that seems to be very similar to what we're seeing here. Verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, you may know that there are several lists of the 12 disciples in the Bible, and they all contain slight variations. The only thing they all have in common is that Peter is always listed first, and Judas Iscariot is always listed last. Beyond that, the order always varies, and even some of the names vary, not because the list wasn't fixed, but because several of the men appear to have had multiple names Simon the Zealot here is elsewhere called Simon the Canaanite. And Thaddeus here is elsewhere called Judas, the brother of James. Obviously, he found it wiser not to use the name Judas for obvious reasons. Verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. We should be careful to notice that there are several differences between this commission and the great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel. Here, the twelve disciples are sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But in the Great Commission, they are sent out into all the world. Here, they are told to preach and heal, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. In the Great Commission, they are told to make disciples and to baptize and teach. Therefore, we want to be careful about using this passage as a sort of blueprint for how to do missions as at least some of what Jesus seems to say is specific to this first stage of kingdom proclamation and expansion. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't general principles here. It is just to say that we would want to compare this passage with the Great Commission passage at the end of Matthew's gospel, and we'd want to check in with the book of Acts and the apostolic epistles to see how these principles worked out in the post-Pentecostal era of mission and expansion. We continue reading now at verse 8b. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here we see that kingdom workers are not to be motivated by money. At the same time, Jesus says that Gospel workers should expect to receive a basic level of support from those to whom they minister, for the laborer deserves his food. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in 1 Timothy 5. He says, For the scripture says, 'You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5.18 Paul's citation there is closer to the wording of Luke ten seven, but he is clearly referencing this set of instructions from the Lord. So how do we reconcile these two seemingly contradictory statements? Give without pay and the laborer deserves his wages. It, it seems that gospel workers are not to charge for the gospel message. Rather, it should be made freely available to all. Yet at the same time, gospel workers should receive a living wage from those who benefit from their ministry. To apply this principle, I think we would say that churches should be open to all and the gospel preached freely to all, yet those who can should contribute so that a gospel worker can be reasonably maintained. Further, I think we would want to say, based on the principles in this passage and their use by the Apostle Paul, that if a community will not support gospel workers at some reasonable level, then that should be interpreted as a sign of their rejection of the gospel. At some point, money talks. Now, I say all of that by way of application of the principles contained in this passage, but I already said that this passage most directly applies to the particular agency of the twelve, a point which Matthew labors to make. So I think the most direct application of the story would be to say that whoever rejects the apostles, however that rejection is communicated, has de facto rejected Christ. To reject the messengers is to reject the one who sent and authorized the messengers. That is the reality being referred to in verses 14 to 15. A community that rejects the apostolic gospel rejects Christ and can expect nothing less than terrible judgment. That's the main point. Nevertheless, I think there are certain other legitimate applications to all gospel ministry and to all gospel workers, as indicated by the Apostle Paul's use of these principles in one of his pastoral epistles. D.A. Carson, for example, gives this discourse, the heading, Mission and Martyrdom, a heading which seems to indicate that some of what is being said is intended to be heard and received in a paradigmatic way. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out As sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let us notice here that gospel workers should expect a certain level of peril and hardship. Sheep in the midst of wolves know themselves to be at risk, and so should gospel workers. Nevertheless, we should also be sure to notice that divine assistance has been promised. When we are required to give testimony under hostile conditions, we are assured of help from the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let us also be aware that the gospel will divide and stir up resentment, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Note verse 22 very well. Perseverance is definitional to any biblical concept of saving faith. The expression in verse 23 is debated, as many as seven interpretive options are presented by various scholars. The two most likely are, firstly, that we should understand the saying in a generalized sense. Jesus is simply saying that we will never finish the work of evangelism. We will still be appealing to villages in Israel and indeed villages in Asia and Africa and everywhere else when the kingdom finally comes. The other likely option is that it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In this interpretation, Jesus is saying that they must hurry with the gospel to all the villages in Israel because if they reject their Messiah, then one of his first acts as the reigning king will be to punish his own people for their stubbornness and sedition. In this sense, the coming of the Son of Man refers to his coming upon Jerusalem in judgment, not his second coming physically to the earth. The kingdom does come in stages, and Jesus is now reigning in heaven. So this second option also has much to commend it. However, no one should be dogmatic given the range of possibilities and the number of honest scholars representing both positions. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We follow a crucified Savior. Jesus died naked and despised upon a cross. Therefore, what right have we to expect riches, fame, and respect? That's the point there. Verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Eventually, the truth will out. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. At the end of all things, the real truth will be revealed to everyone. Everyone will see all deceit and deceptions will be burned away under the light of his revelation and glory. Therefore, as people who have already seen the secrets of the kingdom, let us be bold in our proclamation and certain of our ultimate vindication and reward on the day of the Lord. A servant who buries his treasure in the field or who hides his light under a bushel basket will fare poorly on judgment day do not be afraid. It is not the ignorant judgment of men you should be concerned about, but rather the all-seeing, everlasting judgment of Almighty God. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother will find it. Jesus is the Prince of Peace in that he reconciles us to God and in that he will reign over a perfect world of peace in the age to come. But now, because the kingdom is breaking into a rebellious and hostile world, his message divides and incites hostility. You, therefore, must expect to experience some of that division and some of that hostility as a citizen, and particularly as a messenger of the kingdom. There will be a cost in the here and now for following Jesus. Now, for years in North America, that was a theoretical truth. But now, all of a sudden, that is everyday discipleship once again. Families are dividing again over Jesus, And once again, the reality of our faith is being tested and tried by familial affections. So make sure that you aren't loving mom and dad or son and daughter more than Jesus. If you lose Jesus, you lose it all. You have to be willing again to let go of every earthly love and loyalty in order to cross over into the life of of the kingdom that is coming. It's a leap of faith again, and in a way that it hasn't been here at least for a very long time, but it is now, and the stakes are remarkably high. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Once again, we see that to accept the messenger is to accept the one who sends and authorizes the messenger. Ultimately and immediately, that refers to the apostles, to the authorized and empowered agents of Jesus Christ. You can't accept Jesus and reject his apostles. That is illogical. Red-letter Christianity is, in that sense, ridiculous. Jesus is declaring an essential connection in these red letters between his message and the message of the apostles, And he demonstrates that by sharing with them some of his extraordinary authority. The miraculous power of the apostles is intended primarily to validate their claim that they are in fact the authorized and empowered agents of Jesus Christ. The apostles are special. They are foundational and they cannot be deprioritized or delegitimized as they so often are in progressive and liberal circles today. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus said, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So to state the obvious, to receive the apostles is to receive Jesus is to receive God. So that's the immediate and ultimate meaning of this passage. And yet, the fact that Jesus does go on to speak of the little ones here suggests a secondary application as well. D.A. Carson says helpfully here, verse 40 probably refers primarily to the apostles. And verses 41 to 42, move through prophets and righteous men down to these little ones. the, The least in the kingdom seen as persecuted witnesses in the latter part of the dialogue, closed quote. Thus, there is an organic connection between Christ, his apostles, and his church. They must be accepted or rejected as a unit. This prepares us to make sense of the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31-46. There is a sense in which receiving the apostles and caring for the brothers and sisters of Christ, loving the true church, is identical to receiving and loving Christ himself. That's the logic that is being developed by Jesus in these passages. Now, the chapter division is a little artificial here. Verse 1 of chapter 11 was probably the end that Matthew envisioned for this section. Let me read it to you now. Matthew says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Thus concludes the third major section in Matthew's gospel. We've seen the gospel of the kingdom anticipated and declared, and we have seen it extended through the person and work of Christ, and also now through the empowerment of his chosen agents, the 12 disciples. In chapter 11, we discover that the extension of the kingdom results in ever-increasing division and hostility, even as the Lord predicted. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post Daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.